hppodcraft.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We are doing bonus content for June. I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Chad Pfeiffer. Hello, everybody. You may have noticed in our opening tag there, we didn't use the uh, customary scream as we usually do. And that's for a very good reason. It's that in space, no one can hear you scream. Oh! Chad, are we talking about what I think we're talking about? That's what we're talking about. The very Lovecraft-inspired movie, released in 1979, written by Dan O'Bannon and directed by Ridley Scott, Alien! Alien! Yes, we're going to discuss Alien for our bonus content. And while we've been focused on fiction by female authors of all types this month, we wanted to get back to some of the alien invasion themes of the Screwfly Solution, as we'd mentioned on another episode. And and also, we've just been talking about Alien a lot between ourselves. You're you're yeah. like Alien crazy right I'm now, right? I'm an Alien nut at this moment, because <laughs> I've it's the 40th anniversary of this movie. Yes. So there's like some live action shorts that have come out. There's a new alien role playing game coming from Free League, which I'm totally into their stuff. I, I'm reading the old comic books. I, I just I've got alien fever. You got alien fever, and that's why we decided to cover it for all of you delicious patrons. So that's that's our bonus content for this month. There you go. So I feel like most of you have probably already seen this movie. If you haven't, you need to. So just stop this right now and go, yeah, watch, go watch Alien. This. Just watch it. Watch the director's cut. Watch the original cut. It doesn't matter. They're both good. I think, honestly, it is. this is one of the best sci-fi horror films ever made. Absolutely. It's so good that it has spawned five sequels and two crossover films. Each one of them better than the last. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> but we're going to talk specifically about Alien, the first movie. But the conversation will probably, of course, bleed out into the whole Alien franchise, I'm sure. Yeah, and I've actually seen all of the Alien films, even those crossover movies. Played the video games, yes. and I even had a giant alien doll when I was <gasps> a kid. You had that? I had it. Yeah, it was amazing. Oh, but it's it. it's always great to revisit this first one. I just rewatched it last night. It's good. It's still scary. Oh my Beautiful God. to look at. Definitely deserving of its status as not just one of the best science fiction films of all time, but one of the best films of all time. Yeah, I know it gets ranked on those lists quite a bit. We'll talk plot specifics later. I don't really want to go into a full summary. It's a pretty popular movie, and we'll be treading some well-worn ground. But let's get the basic plot elements out, just in case you haven't stopped this and gone to watch the movie. (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. Quick summary. All right, so a space freighter called the Nostromo is pulled off course to investigate a transmission of unknown origin. They don't know what this transmission is. They send some people down to a planet to investigate, and they find an alien ship. While investigating, they discover the signal is actually a warning, not a distress signal. The people on the ground find thousands of these huge eggs, and a creature comes out of the egg and attaches itself to the face of one of the crew. So despite the orders of the current commander, Ripley, Ash, who is the science officer, lets them on board despite quarantine regulations. This thing falls off the guy's face. They think, hey, fine and dandy, everything's great. Let's have dinner. They eat. All of a sudden, creature bursts out of the guy's chest, and it escapes. So the creature hides on the ship, it grows very big, man-sized, and then it slowly kills off the whole crew. They find out that Ash, the science officer, is secretly an android who is working for the corporation to bring back the alien. The crew is expendable. Dun-dun-dun. They destroy Ash, and then they try to blow up the ship and take a shuttle to escape. However, Ripley is the only one to, to survive the whole time, along with her cat, and they escape onto a shuttle, and the whole big ship blows up. Everything's fine, but guess what? No, it's not. Alien got on the shuttle, too. <laughs> She's able to blow it out the airlock before it kills her and her cat. Ripley and Jonesy, that's the cat's name, go into hypersleep and await rescue. The end. 
Wow, nice work, man. I think the way that you're able to do that in just a couple of paragraphs illustrates that even though this is a two-hour science fiction movie, there's a beautiful simplicity to the story. It's, mm. it's not a complicated story. No. It suggests a lot, but in terms of what happens, it's pretty straightforward. And since you mentioned the fact that the cat survives, that Ripley literally saves the cat yeah. in this uh, movie... <laughs> This is actually the first time I watched the movie through the lens of Blake Snyder's Save the Cat screenwriting book, which I read a couple of years ago. Sure. And I, I'll bring that up every once in a while on the show. I know not everybody likes it, but I think it does articulate good structure. It was written well after this movie came out. Unfortunately, it can be used to make some things formulaic. However, I was really surprised at how Alien hits the beats from that book right on time. Mm-hmm. Minute 12 is when you're supposed to have the catalyst in a good screenplay. You spend the first 10, 12 minutes setting up the world of the characters. Mm-hmm. And then the catalyst comes along to upend that world somehow. Right. Uh, so when the characters are woken up from their hypersleep in the beginning, they think they're about to go home to Earth. Yeah. And in fact, I watched it with the subtitles on to make sure I didn't miss anything. And you can hear Ripley during these scenes in the background. She's trying to contact a station in Antarctica and not getting through. And she can't figure oh. out why, which was I thought was a cool detail. I mean, they really think they're close to home at first. Right. And it's right at minute 12 when Tom Skerritt tells them, no, 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 we're actually like 10 months away from Earth still. Yeah. We've been woken up and pulled off course because of this distress signal or whatever it is. Yeah. And then after a catalyst, you always have the debate section. Well, what do we do about this thing that's happened? And one thing I love about this movie that we'll definitely discuss more later, other than other than the science officer, these are blue-collar workers. Yeah. You know, They are not Star Trek-type intrepid explorers or mercenaries mm-hmm. or adventurers. They did their job already. Now they just want to go home and get paid. There's a lot of talk about bonuses and what we're mm-hmm. going to get and you know what our status is within the team so the debate section it's all about why do we even have to go and investigate this should we even bother doing it mm-hmm. but apparently if they hear about alien life no matter who they are they have to go investigate it. and so they go down to that planet and then the break into two you know and break blake snyder's formula it happens right at minute 25 the uh, sid field who was also a screenwriting author he called that plot point one mm-hmm. you know it's the moment that the characters fully enter the upside down world in Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey, that would be also, I guess, the crossing of the threshold. Right. And there it is. If you pause at minute 25, they see that giant alien ship on the planet for the yeah. first time. And that's really the first alien encounter in the movie, the ship and that giant skeletal being within. Mm-hmm. What that skeletal being is all about, we, we never find out. Right. And yeah. I don't want to go on forever about this, but what, what I really found neat is that in Snyder's formula, you have the midpoint, very middle of the movie, mm-hmm. which is often called the false victory. Right. Because yes. it actually people are celebrating, but it's actually a defeat. And oftentimes there's some sort of celebration or party happening at that moment right in the middle of the movie. And that is the exact scene with the chest burster. Uh. The, the face hugger has dropped off of John Hurt. and He's like, hey, everybody, I feel great. Like you said, let's all laugh, <laughs> chow down, have a little din din. And then we can go home, and then boom, the alien baby bursts out of his chest, which is, was a little hard to watch after the space balls. <laughs> up, but, uh, and then we go to bad guys closing in. That's the next step in the screenplay formula, and that's when all the murdering starts. Sure, happening. yeah. But mm-hmm. The chest bursting scene is so iconic, and in my memory, it felt like it happened much earlier in the movie yeah. because you know what you remember about the movie is a lot of what happens in the second half of it, yeah. and it was kind of cool to see. Wow, it, it happens right there in the middle, actually. Yeah. The, I'm telling you, the script structure in Alien is, is perfect, and I think that's part of the reason it works so well. Let's talk about the production, since you're talking sure. about the script structure. It starts with Dan O'Bannon. In 1974, he made a low-budget sci-fi movie with John Carpenter called Dark Star. The alien in that movie was a spray-painted beach ball, and he really felt like he wanted to make another sci-fi movie with a cool alien in it. I know it's a beach ball, but it, that, if you look it up, the Dark Star alien's kind of awesome in it. <laughs> 
it's it's a little Lovecraftian because it's just a ball. I think it's got little feet. You know, it's funny looking. It's yes. definitely weird. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's. So he focused on a script with more of a horror vibe and less comedy because Dark Star was kind of a comedy and a small cast. That got pushed to the side. And in 1975, Dan O'Bannon got hired to work on Alejandro Jodorowsky's Dune. The movie died, but before it did, O'Bannon spent six months in Paris to work on the movie. There, he met artists H.R. Giger, Mobius, and Chris Foss. He loved Giger's stuff a lot. And here's a quote from O'Bannon. His paintings had a profound effect on me. I'd never seen anything that was quite as horrible and at the same time as beautiful as his work. And so I ended up writing a script about a Giger monster. You know, he as an artist was profoundly affected by H.P. Lovecraft. His first collection of work was called Necronomicon in 1977. And that was the book that Ridley Scott was looking at when he decided, let's design it this way, right? Yeah. So Abandon came back to L.A. after Dune fell through and he worked with Ronald Shusett on a script called Memory, which would later become the 1990 Schwarzenegger movie Total Recall. (laughs) Careful. That's my head you have there. While working on that with with Shusett, Shusett had another movie idea about gremlins and a World War II bomber. And then they just kind of began tossing these ideas around. O'Bannon was calling his alien movie Star Beast, but then changed it to Alien to make it less unwieldy. And also now it has meaning as an adjective and a noun. Right. It's a great title. Yeah, it's awesome. So they started throwing these ideas around, and and Shusit came up with the idea of a person getting implanted with an egg embryo that would burst out of him. I'm wondering if the Screwfly solution even played into some of this, because it was published in 77. Or at least something was in the zeitgeist about parasitic bugs. Well, when working on the script, O'Bannon quotes a lot of the things he, he borrowed from, and he says he didn't borrow, he totally stole, but... Those things include The Thing from Another World, Forbidden Planet, Planet of the Vampires, as well as a short, a short story by Clifford D. Simak called Junkyard, where they land on a planet and they find a chamber full of eggs. Uh-huh. So you're just like, you know, little bits and pieces here and there. When Shusit and O'Bannon began pitching it, they called it Jaws in Space. And they were going to go with Roger Corman to produce it, but then they got a better deal with a production company called Brandywine that was connected with 20th Century Fox. I think Jaws in Space is pretty appropriate. However, the guys at Brandywine weren't very happy with the script, so they wanted changes that pissed Shusett off, saying that they were just making the movie worse. So they wanted to add a char- this character, Ash, the android. The whole android thing was them. And O'Bannon thought it was unnecessary. But, of course, I disagree. I think the Ash stuff gave it a whole other level. I mean, and, and Shusett actually agreed with me. He says, one of the best things in the movie, the whole idea and scenario was theirs, you know, with having the android. Because it adds in a whole other layer to the thing. Sure, the alien's killing people, it's, it, but it's more of a force of nature. But having Ash, this android, manipulating the situation so that these people are killed, the crew is expendable. Those are humans making those decisions because they want this alien as a bioweapon or they want it to, to somehow take advantage. Whatever the reasons, it's the humans that are really screwing each other over. Yeah. If Ash wasn't in there, I don't think you would have gotten that level to it. Absolutely. I mean, Ash represents this corporation that hired them all. So it's this faceless business entity that actually the android represents. And and you need that character, especially if they're calling it Jaws in space. If you think about Ash as kind of the mayor from Jaws, you know, he serves a mon- <laughs> he is. I mean, he serves a monetary interest rather than a human interest. Yes. Uh, you know, the mayor should shut down the beaches, but he says, no, we got to keep them open. He also has aspects of Richard Dreyfuss's character from that movie because he's got so much respect and admiration for the mm-hmm. creature, which in a lot of these types of stories that we've done, we see there's always that character. I, I can't believe how beautiful it is. A perfect <laughs> killing machine. You know, he, he has a little speech about that. But the 
Ash character is really important, and I've talked about monster in the house movies before. You know, you've got to have the house, you got to have the monster, but there also has to be that sin. Ash is that sin. He represents putting monetary interests before humanity. Right. It's yes. crucial to the movie. For sure. And I, when I was watching it, I had a flashback. I, I rewatched it recently. I had this flashback um, to when I first saw it. And I remember when Ash turns, basically, and then Ripley hits him and he starts bleeding white stuff. And yeah. thinking, oh my God, is he an alien? Is an alien inside of him? What is happening? I don't understand. Like the the confusion of it. That scene goes on. They don't explain it for uh, until his head gets knocked off and he's still fighting. And then yeah, I think it's finally Effect Coda that goes, oh, he's a robot. He's a robot. But, but up till then, it's totally crazy what's yeah. going on. And that, that fight is very, uh, I feel like they didn't choreograph it much because they really get down and dirty. Wow. It's kind of, we were laughing at it last night as we were watching it, not because it's funny, but just because it was so like, it's not you know, they're just grappling with yeah. this guy. His head's rolling around, milk is spraying everywhere. Yeah. You know? So it, yeah, it, it was so, I don't know, original. I guess just, it was just, you didn't expect that to happen and it was uh-huh. it was so unsettling and creepy but the script eventually went through eight drafts with the final draft being written by hill and giller who were producers um at brandywine but the screenwriters guild gave o'bannon sole credit for the screenplay which i don't get yeah well it credits are a really weird world in the in, with wga there's a lot of rules and arbitration that goes on but i think if you're the person that shepherded in the whole thing i mean most scripts that you see there's actually been some rewriting on if they're big budget enough and you don't ever know who those writers are when you're talking about hill you're talking about walter hill yes the, is is the guy from brandywine and he he did the warriors in 48 hours yeah you can kind of see his imprints on this film definitely. oh sure fox wasn't so hot on this at first but with star wars being such a big hit it was all about the sci-fi so it yeah. Was greenlit with a budget of four point two million dollars. Now, O'Bannon thought he was going to direct it, but the studio wanted Hill to direct it. But he wasn't up for it because it was special effects heavy, and he was like, "I don't know how to deal with that stuff. Let's find somebody else that could do it." They liked the guys at Brandywine, liked Ridley Scott's *The Duelist*, uh, which came out in nineteen seventy-seven. That was his first film, so they asked him to direct *Alien*, and he accepted. So Ridley Scott did super detailed storyboards for the whole movie and it had all the cool suits and the spaceship design and all like just it was you know he went all out on these storyboards for the whole movie but the studio they loved the storyboards and they loved the vision they were able to see you know what he was wanted to do with it so they doubled the budget wow so casting for the movie uh, was super important because there's only seven cast members Mary Selway worked with Scott on The Duelist so she helped him put this cast together the way the script was written the sexes weren't important in fact everything was very gender neutral the way that uh, Bannon wrote it they, and they wanted right. they thought that was important uh, Scott had the idea that they all had to be a bit rough around the edges and he came up with the term space truckers or at least he used that term maybe somebody else came up with it but uh, <laughs> scott wrote detailed backgrounds for each of the characters to give to the actors and then he kind of let them improv during rehearsals a bit to really get this very kind of realistic style of dialogue and there's a lot of crosstalk yeah. in the movie but it all yeah, feels yeah. real feels like a sydney lumet piece actually a little bit the way that the actors talk over each other and feel like they actually really do know each other yeah. you don't have to say anything expositioning to establish their relationships you get it from the way that they talk to each other yeah they're doing there's it. a part where yafik koto totally sexually harasses uh, oh yeah i know <laughs> but but it's but it's like the way that she ugh, is like disgusted by it and then kind of laughs yeah you get their whole relationship right away you know that's one of the amazing things about alien is the lack of exposition it's in there obviously but it's not it's done yeah. in such a way that you 
you don't know. Like you said, it, it's just really well done. Roger Ebert also pointed out that most of the actors are older uh, than you would have in a typical horror film, especially at the yeah. time, because they're usually young people, young, sexy people. Absolutely. Ebert wrote, none of them were particularly young. Tom Skerritt, the captain, was 46. Hurt was 39, but looked older. Ian Holm was 48. Harry Dean Stanton was 53. Yapit Koto was 42. And only Veronica Cartwright was 30. And Weaver, Sigourney Weaver, was 29. Uh, were in that age range of your usual thriller cast. Many recent action pictures have improbably young actors casting key roles or sidekicks but by mm. skewing older alien achieves a certain texture without even making a point of it these are not adventurers but workers hired by a company to return 20 million tons of ore to earth and i think yeah. he's so right about that so much of what makes this movie great is the aesthetic of it and that world feels real it feels lived in the actors are not just characters but living breathing people that have a very genuine feel and they're totally relatable yeah absolutely i mean harry dean stanton is the first to get killed well he's not the first to get killed but he's the first to get killed by the adult alien kind yeah. of slasher style and just watching him walking around scared with his weathered face it's quite a bit different of a feel from a naked co-ed just wandering around the woods you know brad is that you it's, yeah the other thing it's funny because i'm watching the expanse slowly now mm -hmm. and it borrows a lot from alien and this series but mm -hmm. it does have those impossibly young characters who have like really important jobs yes. they're all hot yeah gorgeous and for some you know they've all decided to go out into space and live these sort of isolated lives i don't necessarily buy it no the way that you do this movie it's uh yeah, I like anything anybody that advocates for hiring older actors. <laughs> but it really does work with this very well. And even Sigourney Weaver, I guess, is supposed to be, I mean, they get her in her underwear at the end, and she's supposed to represent that kind of sexy co-ed. But at 29 yeah. is still even old. There's a gravity to her that is not present in a lot of these other types of horror movies. Oh, yeah, she, and she's really great. And then she's, of course, the only reasonable person in the movie. I feel like when I was watching it, she deserves to survive out of all of them. Well, if they just listened to her, yeah, exactly. none of it would have happened. <laughs> she said, no, I'm not letting anybody in because he has been in contact with this alien and we need to put him in quarantine. And they're like, ah, just let him in, you know. And finally, it's Ash that does it. Yeah. So Bannon uh, showed Scott H.R. Giger's work and he agreed it was awesome, especially the piece Necronom 4, uh, which is, if you look at it, it's basically the alien. The studio thought that the creature was too ghastly, but Scott pushed for it, and then they finally relented. It says, uh, Gordon Carroll, one of the producers, he said, the first second that Ridley saw Giger's work, he knew that the biggest single design problem, maybe the biggest problem in the film, had been solved. Hmm. Because, you know, the alien just looks so flipping cool, and if you have oh, a movie does, called yeah. Alien, you gotta have an awesome alien. And so, yeah, boom! No beach balls here. No. <laughs> No. So in the shooting of the movie, they made it typically out of latex and stuff, but there's lots of kind of gross bits uh, in the egg, you know, when the egg opens up and shoots out. Yeah. That's actual animal bits. And when the face hugger, they're dissecting it, that's also actual real animal bits. And I was thinking, man, it looks very realistic because it was. It was real. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> it's so gross. You know what? It's funny when we were watching that scene again and um, John Hurt is looking, he's getting very close to that egg and looking at the thing moving yeah. around inside of it. And then the thing just shoots out at him. Heather was going, I don't know about that. I hate it when they get close to stuff. And I'm going, no, no, realize these are not, there's a science officer, but the rest of these people, it's not like Prometheus where I was really mad the whole time because yes. they were scientists doing dumb stuff. Yeah. Like, this is just a dude. He's out here to get it. He doesn't know. Yeah. He doesn't go, that thing might jump out at me. He's just like, whoa, there's something moving in there. And he gets close to look at it. That's it. I totally buy it. So the face hugger was the first thing that Giger actually designed for the movie since he used 
a lot of his older material, things that he had already painted, like that uh, Necro- mm-hmm. Necronom, Necronom 4 was a painting that he had already done. So he'd used stuff that he'd done before, but the facehugger was the one first real thing for this. And he also designed the inside of the alien spaceship as well. The facehugger is super insect-like, and it has snaky aspects to it as well. Mm. I feel like he really taps into some basic lizard brain human fears yeah. with the look of that thing. Well, you know, the chestburster was based on a Francis Bacon painting, three studies for figures at the base of the crucifixion. And if you look at the third study, because there's like, you know, the three of them, three different pictures together, it totally looks like a chestburster. Wow. Oh, yeah, I'm looking at it now. Oh, that's Speaking of Speaking of the chest bursting Mm -hmm. scene, the actors were, they were shown what was going to happen. Obviously they rehearsed it and they did the scene, but they were not told how much freaking blood there was going to be and how messy they thought it would just kind of come out and there'd be like a little blood, but all the blood like that was, they had hydraulics shooting blood out all over the place. Yeah. it freaked out the actress and Cartwright, who actually fell down and went into hysterics, supposedly. According to Tom Scared, he said, well, what you saw on the camera was a was the real response. She had no idea what the hell happened. All of a sudden, the thing just came up. So they did the whole chest bursting scene in one take because obviously it made a huge mess. It was, it was a big deal. <laughs> but yeah. it's one of the most iconic scenes in the movie perhaps one of the most iconic film scenes ever. Yeah, Cartwright's so good. She was in inva- she was in the Invasion of the Body Snatchers remake right around this time as well. She was also right. the uh I think the the mom in Flight of the Navigator, which is uh, not a good movie. You know, that, the, the actors really do look stunned when that happens though, and I I remember reading about audience reactions during that scene when it first oh, was yeah. playing and it's just really unexpected. I mean, one knows that things aren't quite right in that scene. John Hurt couldn't possibly just be okay after yeah. having the face hugger on him for so long. But I, I think probably the expectation was, okay, he's going to turn into the alien or something like that. Right. He's going to start acting weird or maybe he'll metamorphosize into something. And then, bam, you know, <laughs> the alien jumps out of his chest. I mentioned the Spaceballs scene. The thing is so iconic now, we kind of take it for granted. You know, the yeah. Spaceballs scene, he puts a little hat on. Hello, my baby. Hello, my darling. And it is kind of amusing when you watch the scene in Alien now because he, the little baby alien takes a beat to sort of turn around and look at everybody in the yeah. room. But seeing this for the first time must have been really crazy. Oh, yeah. And unexpected. Absolutely. I, I mean, there's all, all these stories about people fainting and stuff. And yeah. saw it and I don't know if I buy that, but. I don't know if I buy all that stuff. Maybe. So the film shot in 14 weeks from July 5th to October 21st in 1978. Uh, So some fun set stories. The spacesuits were not properly ventilated and actors almost passed out from uh, CO2 and heat. Well, that does sound fun. (laughs) Also, they built this huge leg for the landing craft of the ship when it went on the planet. But Scott thought that it was too small. So he had them make children-sized suits. And he put his kids in the suits. So like the long shots of the ship are actually little kids inside of it. And also the kids almost passed out because (laughs) they didn't have proper ventilation in those suits. And finally, when the kids were getting sick, they were able to like go, okay, we got to do something. So they put hoses and cooling systems and fans and stuff in them. So they got to help the kids, the adults. Yeah. Who cares about the adults? But the kids. I'm not even sure you can have those kids doing that. That seems a little. I didn't know that. I got to rewatch that scene now to see if I can. I didn't know it either until I was reading up on it. It does not show. It was Scott's idea to add the alien getting into the shuttle with Ripley. The movie originally ended with she she and the cat just got away and that was the end. Mm -hmm. But he thought it would be cool if there was like that last bit. But get this. He wanted to have the alien kill her and then the alien to do her log entry in her voice. Hmm. (laughs) 
Well, the alien being in the shuttle is the fatal attraction moment. I mean, I don't know if he invented this. I don't, but you know, there there has to be the monster comes back one last time. Oh, sure. Past all reason, you, you always have that moment in this type of movie. It would have been strange if it had done the voice thing, but I'll tell you, the creepiest part of that whole bit is that it's hiding in the wall. Yeah. You know, it, she discovers the alien when she's on the shuttle. It doesn't jump out at her. No. It could have killed her the minute she stepped on board. But yeah. it's, it was like it's kind of sleeping or resting or something. Well, I thought it was hiding because it does have intention beyond just being a killing machine or a force of nature. It wants to get to Earth. It knows, climb in here. You don't necessarily need to kill this thing because we're going to go somewhere else yeah. where I can continue to, whether it knows it just out of some survival instinct or if it's consciously making this decision, there's a real intelligence to the thing in here that sort of disappears in later movies, I think. Yeah. Where it's a little bit more of just a monster. I mean, obviously it's good at strategizing how to kill people all the time and how to hide and trick Mm -hmm. them. But a plan to wait it out and get somewhere else, it's pretty chilling. I mean, even when she discovers it, it's still kind of going, no, I'm still part of the wall. You know, it's still kind of in there. It doesn't jump out and start fighting her the way it does for other folks. No, well, I I took that a little differently because, I mean, it like puts its arm out and like kind of hisses and then just kind of goes back in. To me, I, I thought maybe it just ate enough. You know, like it's an animal, mm. like it's not hungry it's anymore. And so it's just like, yeah. okay, I'm going to go over here and rest for a while and digest all the, the, the stuff I ate. So it's not really. Right. It's another stage of its likes of its life cycle. Yeah. If she had to like turn on some ventilation thing or some, some steam shot it to wake it up, to get it to move out of there. And the whole part is so creepy. It's so, oh, it's just good. And it felt like it made sense. You know, so, like we were talking about Beatle Attraction, you know, like, come on, you know, she should, she should be dead. <laughs> but like. In this, it all made sense. And she was just running around like an idiot. The ship is going to explode and she just had to get the hell out of there. She didn't have time to check everything. She didn't have time to... She didn't, but there wasn't... I mean, because she runs... She can't get to the shuttle, right? She sets the self-destruct, can't get to the shuttle because the alien's there. Runs Mm -hmm. back and tries to stop the self-destruct and can't do it, which I thought was a great beat. Mm -hmm. Okay, I got no choice. I got to face the alien. But then when she gets back, it's not there and it didn't hurt the cat. Right. Where did it go? It's She should have known it was on board the shuttle at right. that point. But I didn't think about it because I wasn't on her little journey there. Like, oh, my God, I can't stop this from happening. Now. Yeah. So the film is paced very slowly, something that I yeah. think still mostly works for it. It builds tension, but I found myself like just kind of loving the sets and the environment. And there's so many details and it just that world like i want to be in that world and walk around that ship and look at all the stuff and touch the things and the first edit of the movie was over three hours long but then they were able to edit it back down to like under two hours well like i said i'm amazed that the alien doesn't show up until halfway through the movie i've written some films in this genre and you know executives are very impatient if you oh, spend time building character you don't have blood and guts in that first act they get very mad how are people <laughs> even going to know what this movie is you know, yeah. as if they don't know from the title and the buying the ticket, sure, and, of course. you know, the blood on the poster. But, you know, they're like, I want somebody dead on page 10. Otherwise, everybody's going to walk out of the theater. It's this strange fear that if you don't give them the blood and guts, yeah. they're going to leave. Yeah. And the truth is, sometimes that's true. But I mean, I think that tension that gets built through the first half of this movie, the feeling of weirdness and oddness and awful discovery yeah. is what makes the second half work so well. You got to have them both. There was a scene that was cut that had Dallas who's the captain of the ship, he's all gunked up and being processed to be a host for a new alien egg. Hmm. This was the part of the film when Ripley was trying to escape. When she was on her own and she runs into and she finds him, they thought it just kind of slowed things down, took away from it. So they they cut that whole scene. I think it's back in the director's cut. Oh, really? The 2013 version of it. 
I can see why they cut it though, because I'll tell you the the you know the closing shot of the movie is just her going into her cryostasis or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and then we see outer space, and then it's over, and it's really unsettling. You know, I want to see the alien floating around frozen in space or something that just tells me it's really all over. Yeah. But I just am not convinced it is, uh-huh. you know, and, and it leaves you in that space, which I think is fantastic. So good. So Jerry Goldsmith did the music, which is used very sparsely in the movie. There isn't much music through it. There's whole scenes where it's just sound effects. Yeah. It's just kind of the coldness of, of space. Goldsmith is my favorite composer. I absolutely love this score. And it's, it's somewhat traditional monster stuff in the action moments and the stressful moments, but it's scoring for the moments of discovery and exploring. There's like a playfulness to it almost. Yeah. Uh, it's tinged with menace at the same time, but I'm talking about in that, you know, in the main title, that bum, 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 yeah, kind of puts you, you in this otherworldly place. It isn't necessarily, I don't know if I'm in a monster movie or is this the beginning of a, a space adventure that's going to be fun? I'm not sure. You know, uh, I don't know. It, it's just such a good score. Well, I know that there was Goldsmith music that, that they used from something else in the movie. Oh, is that right? Because they, it was temp music that they were using when they were doing mm-hmm. the editing and they liked it so much that they wanted to use it. So they used it and they didn't use as much like Jerry Goldsmith wrote some other stuff for that. But they were like, no, we like the original stuff better. We want to use that. And so oh, okay. he said, that's fine. Like he's cool with it. But yeah, it was just one of those things where it's kind of a, a hodgepodge of other music cues sure. and things like that it's not whole big big bits so for from jerry goldsmith when i read that he said he said it, it to him it feels a bit disjointed because it wasn't all oh, one interesting one piece it's a it's a bunch of hobbles oh, i gotta look that up i wonder what other movies they pulled from that's interesting i love aliens the sequel to this that jim cameron made that's the only other one i think is really great i don't remember the third one at all well. It's better than it, it got credit for it. The reason why everybody's mad about the third one, myself included, was because they kill off two of the surviving characters from the last movie in the first mm-hmm. two minutes of the movie. Right. So it's like they went through that whole rigmarole to only just get killed at the beginning of this next movie because I liked those characters. I wanted to see more of those characters yeah. and I felt ripped off. Oh. But now that I'm older and like have some distance between it, actually the alien, that movie, Alien 3, is pretty cool there's some neat stuff in there yeah i gotta revisit it it's david fincher's first big movie right yeah the fourth one i remember because we worked together in los angeles and the power went out in the office we were working at that's right so we decided to go out to the movies that day with uh, our buddy anthony lombardo we went to go see that that's the winona Ryder one right we went to go see that in westwood and as we were walking down the street we saw jay simpson for some reason that's what i have tied up with that's right (laughs) wait somebody yelled you suck yeah it was post trial you know oh right of course i was surprised to see him walking around in in public yeah (laughs) that's what i but but that's funny that's what i remember about alien 4 oj simpson (laughs) i totally i remember that i didn't i didn't connect it to seeing alien 4 but i remember us walking and seeing oj simpson (laughs) the alien versus predator movies are are kind of fun i think they're they're b movies and that they're boring that that's the thing i think that's wrong with them and they should not be considering that well hold up now so cool a- AVP, the first one, is boring. And yes. the comic book was really good. They took elements from the comic book, but then they did a bunch of really dumb stuff with it that didn't make any sense. Specifically, yeah. Predators, they show up when things are hot. So where do you have it take place? The Arctic. Uh, right. Like, what? <laughs> Why is it in the Arctic? That's ridiculous. Well, also, it was really hard to watch anything in the wake of The Matrix because they did oh, all those right, yeah. Matrix-style effects with the Predators and the aliens oh, and it just didn't really yeah, fit in yeah. that world very However, well. However, AVP 2 is 
a B movie that embraces its crappiness, I thought was very enjoyable. I think I saw okay. it with my buddy Kenny and we laughed like the whole way through. It was intentional too. Like they yeah, were doing yeah. ridiculous stuff. Like right away. It just got into it. It didn't screw around. It delivered what was on the tin. Aliens okay. versus Predator. I gotta revisit I it was, that one again. I think well, it's then. it's pretty good. It's pretty entertaining. What about the prequels? What do you think about that? <sighs> well new ones. I gotta say, well, Prometheus, of course beautiful design looked amazing i liked yeah. david the android character that was super good but david's great and yeah in, in all in both of those he's the main thing that's good about it I think. but the the scripts are so sloppy like they just yeah. the characters don't make sense they do things that are ridiculous for no apparent reason you know like yeah. the the scientist who's an expert in biology takes his helmet off on an alien planet. It's like, what right, are you doing? Right, or why set up that they have these like scanners that can go in and scan the whole cave and then they're like, we're going to go in anyway before they're done with their work. Why? Or the guys that get lost in the cave and we're like, we don't know where we are. And then he's like, if only there was a dude who had a 3D map that you're talking to right now <laughs> that could tell you where you are and how to get yeah, out. Yeah, that stuff was driving me crazy. And I think I have a chip on my shoulder about uh, prequels in general anyway. I, I don't want it. There's so much mystery in Alien. They don't address who this giant skeletal creature is yeah on the planet mm -hmm. and i don't really want to find out because it's that's a weird element of it what is yes. that and also before we jumped on to record we were both talking about how it's implied that this isn't like mankind's first contact with alien life it's strange because when they get an alien transmission nobody seems freaked out or shocked by it no they just say look it's everybody's job that if we encounter something like this we have to go check it out but it implies that this is happening to everybody you know if you're out in space yeah. it's your secondary job no matter what it is you're doing if we find signs of intelligent life somehow we got to go check it out so they, yeah. this has obviously happened but again they don't spend time no. showing you you know a book that tells you everything about it or have no, you know, somebody make no. a speech that's just one or two lines and you go oh, okay you kind of just know that that's the world you're in and that's so cool i don't need to know i don't need to yeah. but the backstory. Uh, before we finish this up i just want to say that there are a lot of interesting weird elements to this movie which i think you can infer from our discussion about mm -hmm. this these aliens you don't know where they're from they work in a way that's totally bizarre to us you, in the movie you never really get a good look at the alien it's very mysterious and each time you see it you get another glimpse of it the only reason i know what it looks like is because i've studied this thing for <laughs> for years sure. well, I've i have drawn yeah, it i know exactly what you it know it got, yeah. it got ex but when you're actually just watching the movie, you don't really know what it is. So there's this element of of the really unknown and alien, and it's very Lovecraftian in that in that way. Oh, just the second set of Jaws, you know? That, oh, right. well, huh? <laughs> why? I yeah. don't know why. Why? Yeah, it's such a great film. If you haven't seen it, and you've, at this point in the podcast, shame on you. <laughs> you should have watched it before we talked about it, but if you haven't, go watch it now. Yeah, go check it out. It's such a good one, and uh, obviously we love it because I thought we were actually gonna have to fill time here, but we we didn't. No way, we didn't have to at all. <laughs> no time needed to be filled. We haven't even touched really the other films. We talked, and I could get into all of the other films in great detail. Yeah, I definitely could talk more about the direct the second movie. We got to stop. Such a great action movie, but we got it. We got to cut it there for now. So that was our bonus content for this month. Thanks everybody for hanging out with us all month long. And hopefully this was enjoyable to you. We love chatting about movies and comic books. We're kind of alternating between that stuff right yeah. now. Your suggestions for other bonus material are always welcome. Thank you for uh, being our patrons. And uh, that's all we have for this week. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast bonus content episode. Exclusively on Patreon.